Jonice Biso is the president of UCLA Health, CEO of UCLA Hospital System, and associate vice chancellor of UCLA Health Sciences. Today, she will discuss her experiences managing a major hospital system through the COVID-19 crisis and her outlook for the fall. Let's listen in. Well, thank you. And it's just an honor and a privilege for me to be here today to talk with you all. And what I thought I would do is just start out by giving you an overview of what UCLA Health has um, been doing the past several months, um, even prior to the time that the pandemic was announced in the United States. So just to give you a little brief overview, UCLA Health, we're about a $5 billion health system. We operate four large hospitals and over 200 clinics throughout Los Angeles. Um, we are fortunate to be this past year ranked by US News and World Report as the number one health system in Los Angeles, number one in California, and number four in the nation of only 20 hospitals out of the 5,000 that make the honor roll. So really proud to be here and we're really just so proud of our work in serving uh, Los Angeles and California. So for us at UCLA Health, the response planning actually began in January. Um, we have international services um, and teams that do work in other countries where we lend our expertise really around helping hospitals on quality, safety, and service. So we have a presence in China. So our international team began hearing of the events that were occurring in China and sharing that information with us. So early on, we were able to really engage our infectious disease experts. And we have a large team of infectious disease physicians and staff here that are really good at evaluating and studying emerging infectious diseases. And you know, um, in recent years, we've had a lot of work around the MERS epidemic, the SARS epidemic. Um, so this one was coming forward and we were beginning to collect that information. Um, as early as February, prior to even uh, California and Los Angeles really declaring it a pandemic, we began to put the elements together of our disaster control command center. And the good thing about hospitals and health systems is every year, several times a year, we go through a series of emergency preparedness responses so that our health system is prepared to respond to earthquakes, to fires, to mass casualty incidents, and to also things that are emerging infectious disease. So we were well-trained in doing that, and we were very quickly able to get our command center up and running. In any pandemic, um, it always comes down very quickly to what I call the three S's. Number one, do you have sufficient staffing? Number two, do you have the right type of supplies or personal protective equipment to keep patients, families, and staff safe? And number three, do you have surge capacity? Because remember, um, most of our hospitals and health systems run completely full. We at UCLA Health at that time in March were running at 100% capacity. So we immediately had to say, if we get a large surge of patients, how do we layer on a pandemic on top of a very busy health system? So a lot of our work early on went around making sure we had the PPE, personal protective equipment, making sure we had the surge plan and making sure we could rapidly train our staff because in every infectious disease, the precautions tend to be different, whether it's airborne, whether it's contact isolation, 
So we had to quickly work with the CDC, with the World Health, with LA County Public Health to say, how is this spread and what do we need? And many of you may recall early on, we, people really didn't know, is it airborne? Is it contact? Is it, what are the precautions needed? So I will say those first few weeks were, you know, a little stressful until we were able to make sure we had the right procedures in place. Very early on as well, we had to create over 300 different standard operating procedures for staff so that we could safely care for patients coming in with COVID-19 and all of our other patients. So every day in our command center, we had really calls every two hours, giving updates, quickly changing protocols, quickly getting the education out there to staff. So it required a lot of coordination. Now we're a very large health system and we have about 25,000 employees. So you can imagine the challenges of getting the right information to the right people at the right time. We had to really engage our whole communications team working side by side with us around the clock. And again, it was especially important in this situation where information was changing pretty much every day. We were getting new information. And one of the things we noticed early on is um, it was creating a lot of fear in the public. Um, even before we had to proactively reduce elective surgeries, we began seeing less people coming into our emergency departments, less people coming into clinics. People were very fearful. So one of the things that we really wanted to do with our education is reassure the public. We're able to handle pandemics. We have the right precautions in place. And we want to really work together to keep everyone safe. We can't be a health system that just cares for COVID-19 patients. We know a lot of other patients need care. So we had to really do a lot of outreach and education for our patients to make sure people were comfortable coming in or using telemedicine. We very rapidly, we went from being a health system that typically would see about 100 telemedicine visits a week to 10,000 telemedicine visits a week. We already had the technology. It just wasn't something that the public was used to doing. So in many of, I mentioned those 200 outpatient clinics we have, we quickly converted and very soon we're seeing about 70% of those visits by telemedicine and only really bringing in the patients that we had to see for a physical exam. Early on, we did reduce capacity working closely with LA County. We were all asked to really curtail elective admissions. Now, not all of what the public thinks are elective are things that just can be deferred. It was really anything that was non-urgent or non-emergent. So in the first two months of the pandemic, we had to really defer over 8,000 surgeries. A couple months later, we were able to have enough PPE to safely bring in testing to bring all these patients back. So it took a lot of coordination and a lot of catch up to really get that care to patients. And again, a lot of outreach and education because even though we said we're open, we are screening at every site, we're testing every patient before they came in, people were still reluctant and fearful. So we really had to do a lot of education saying, hospitals and clinics are safe places. Please don't defer the care that you need. We're here and we can safely and effectively take care of you. Now, one of the things in Los Angeles, I think a lot due to the stay-at-home measures that were put in place, um, we did not see the types of patient surges that other parts of the country saw. Um, and in Los Angeles, um, 
County, um, there was really no time that any of our single hospitals were overwhelmed. We were extremely busy, but we, for example, um, have 800 inpatient beds. We had quickly made plans that we could convert other space to create an additional 100 beds if needed. Our peak census of patients in our busiest times, we were running about 80 inpatients with COVID out of those 800 beds, so using about 10% of our capacity. Since the pandemic began, we've safely treated over 600 inpatients, about 4,000 outpatients, and we've tested over 100,000 patients. So again, um, through a lot of effort and coordination, um, it's, it's really been manageable. And today, for example, we have 11 patients within our all four of our hospitals with COVID. So you can see kind of how those numbers are, are coming down. The other big challenge for us in healthcare is, you know, not only was the public apprehensive and frightened at first, but our staff also were, and they're on the front lines. So we had to do, in addition to a lot of education and training, we also had to do a lot of extra support for staff. People had concerns about taking the virus home to their families. We had to do a lot of assistance with childcare. We had to work to have um, satellite hotels for staff to stay in if they worked on the COVID units and they didn't want to go home. A lot of wellness and other types of activities and support that we had to really put together um, fast. So coming kind of out of this pandemic, you know, I will say um, it was a rough time for healthcare. We had, um, you can imagine by dropping your capacity by 50%, but still keeping all the staff on the payroll, we had very, very large reductions in revenues and increases in expenses. So um, in the first two months of the pandemic, our revenue was down by about $250 million. Very hard to make up in a health system where you know your typical operating margins are really two to 3%. So fortunately, um, you know, we did apply for every type of care spending possible, but we still definitely um, had a lot of missed revenue and those types of effects will carry forward to our next um, fiscal year. But we did, you know, if there is any silver lining, I'll say one of the things we did learn is that, you know, we can effectively respond and support the community. We can move things quickly to telemedicine. Um, and we also learned that we can take care of COVID patients in the same types of facilities and the same types of protected environments and still keep the rest of the health system running. So if we have a surge again, um, I don't think you'll see hospitals having to really reduce capacity to the extent that happened early on. We feel confident if we have a surge this fall, we can continue to operate our normal visits and continue to put in place that surge capacity to really do that. And then the next thing that I'll say is, you know, we just certainly learned just the resilience and the, the capacity of our staff to really weather these types of events in healthcare and really emerge stronger. We believe all of the public education that went on during the pandemic will help reduce the occurrence of even regular flu. We're in the midst of really starting to gear up for flu season. We actually anticipate to see less patients hospitalized this year with flu because of all the good public health practices that are going on. So I think that's all I'll cover in my intro. And I'm sure you all have a lot of great questions about 
really where we're going. And one of the things I want to say is as UCLA Health, um, we are um, part of the whole UCLA system, which includes our David Geffen School of Medicine. We are actively involved in some of the most leading edge research and discovery. We're involved in three of the vaccine trials. We um, have developed a new saliva test that will be hitting the market. So we're really doing our part on that research and discovery to really make sure we can really manage through these pandemics in the future and really address them. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janice. Um, And we have a number of questions coming in, but before I turn to the questions, I I want to ask one myself. Um, One of the... um, one of the important areas that we've looked at at No Labels has been testing. And we had a presentation in the past from um, the Broad Institute, which is this supply testing um, um, connected to, to Harvard and MIT, which supply testing in the in the Boston area. Um, where is UCLA uh, healthcare system in testing um, in Los Angeles? If you want to go in and, and get a test, is is it available without a doctor's prescription, without symptoms? Um, and in, in rapid testing schools, what role can UCLA play and where are you, um, where are you in that? Well, thank you. Well, um, early on in March, in the first month of the pandemic, we were thrilled that we were one of the first health systems in Southern California to do our own COVID-19 testing. Our lab had the ability to do that. We quickly put that together. And so that was really important because when you can do your own testing, you can get turnaround times. With that, in about four hours, where the national labs were taking days at that time. Now, we were limited in in the amount of reagent we had and the numbers of machines we had early on, but we quickly worked to get more reagent, more machines. We were working to get some of the FDA regulation relief so that we could move forward. And then, as I mentioned, um, most recently, some of our, our team of researchers have developed a new saliva test that will be very quick. um, And we hope to begin using that even on our student population as we bring those back. But at UCLA Health, the other thing that we did is we set up drive-through testing centers. So people could come through, drive in their car and get tested. Those are the nasopharyngeal swabs, which were the most accurate at the time. And those are the types of tests we're doing, particularly if people are coming in for procedures or to be admitted. And you can now get testing at any of our sites. We have 40 sites set out throughout Los Angeles to get tested. Um, And you can get tested if you feel you had an exposure, you don't have to be symptomatic. Um, And we hope now once we can, again, roll out even more rapid testing that we can make that more available throughout all of our clinics. Great, thank you. Let Let me turn it over to Bill Galston for the first question. Thank you very much for that presentation. I suspect that I speak for everybody on the call uh, when I say that I'm deeply impressed by what you had to say. And in particular, uh, the degree of foresight that you were able to exercise. Uh, I might almost almost add a fourth S, namely speed, because (laughs) Your, you know, your ability to make use of information that came to you in January and get ready for what was about to overwhelm us two months later, I'm sure contributed to the efficacy of, of your response. So here's, here's my question. Uh, 
Was the federal government a good partner in your efforts during this critical period? You've already cited the CARES Act as a vital source of revenue uh, uh, you know, to remedy what otherwise could have, been, could have been a crushing financial blow to your system. Uh, did you get the kind of cooperation that you needed with PPE supplies, another one of your S's? Uh, did, you, did you get the kind of uh, coordination among different institutions uh, that the federal government can often supply when it chooses to do so? So give us your assessment of the relationship between your system and the federal government over the past eight months or so. Yes. And I will say, you know, at both the local, state and federal level, you know, I really believe we had people working as fast as they could to really do the right thing and, and really help us. So, um, you know, early on, that first scramble was getting enough personal protective equipment. All of us in hospitals have supplies of surgical masks and N95s, but they really aren't, weren't to the levels needed. So we actually worked very quickly. Um, even working with the private sector on ways that we could get masks in. We had to open a whole warehouse in Van Nuys to really store our PPE and dispense it from there. So um, I feel we had good co cooperation. You know, at times it did take a little longer to get things done, um, but I do think everybody's intent was there. Um, it was just you know, the level of this pandemic was just really unprecedented in what we had seen before. Um, you know, the other challenges, it, when you think back to other types of emerging infectious disease or coronaviruses that we've had in the past, um, people looked really sick. So if people have SARS or MERS, right, they look really sick, and it becomes easy to know who to isolate. The um, asymptomatic ability to spread this disease is one that really um, put it at a new level, right? Even with PPE, um, where do we use that PPE? Where do we use N95s? We had to be very selective because we didn't have enough N95s that at every clinical care site you can use them, right? So working with the CDC and others on the guidelines, when can we go to a surgical mask and face shield versus an N95? So I do think there was cooperation, um, but you know there were times definitely when things were challenging, but I believe everyone had the best interest of the public in mind. If I may just do a quick follow-up. Uh, a special feature of, of this coronavirus that you just cited, namely the share, the share of the population that can be totally asymptomatic and infectious at the same time, doesn't that, doesn't that lead us back straight to Steve Kaplan's point about the vital importance of mass testing in order to get, in order to get this pandemic un, under control? How do you think we're doing? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we all wanted to do early on is to be able to open things back up to get our economy flourishing again, to get people back to their jobs. So that is why, you know, we've been spending so much time on the research effort to say, how can we have a quick test, an inexpensive test, something that people can do at home that allow us to really test people on a daily basis. So I do think that is so important going forward. And it is exciting that, you know, 
we already have some of these tests coming on the market that hopefully will allow us to really get back to some of our routines that are so important for other aspects of the country. You know, we already are seeing, you know, just tremendous mental health effects of this pandemic at levels that we haven't seen before. Um, if I might uh, turn it over to Art Pappas. So the uh, move that you had to telemedicine is pretty impressive that you did it early and and as, and the, the volume that you were able to get at is also impressive. Some of the areas around the United States have had difficulty with reimbursement for that type of approach. Have you had the same challenge or were your systems more cooperative in that regard? Yes. Yeah. In the past, that's been always one of the challenges, but we did have in the state of California, we had um, some initial waivers passed early on that allowed us to really bill for telemedicine. And we could bill at like a mid-level visit, not as much as an in-person, but at a mid-level type um, visit category. And then the other thing was that we received some relief on is the ability to do it across state lines, right? So if we had patients, our patients that were calling from another state, we were able to still do that. So um, we're hoping waivers like that can be here to stay. Um, Maxine Clark, the next question. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Spisa. We're uh, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm on the board of Barnes Jewish Hospital. Oh yeah, um, yeah. So it's uh, comparable. I know the CEO well there. He's a great colleague. <laughs> um, so when you got the early warning, you know that you got in January, uh, which seems to be a pivotal date. I know that supposedly the the DNA for the disease was also shared early, so people could start on the uh, therapeutics, etc. What was the process for sharing that across other hospitals? In the system, you know, like yourself, like like Barnes Jewish Hospital across the United States, and and what held people back from acting as quickly as you did if they had the same information? Yeah, you know, I think um, so. First of all, um, you know, some of the information coming out of China was difficult, right? To to get numbers and things like that. So we really had to rely on some of our own people who were, you know, based there. Um, but one of the things, um, the other thing that we did is we were one of the sites for screening all people coming in through LAX, the major airport. The CDC had begun basing people there in February. So we, anyone with symptoms was coming into us. So we began to collect some intel there. And amongst our, certainly amongst our university hospitals through several forums and boards we have, people were sharing. There are other um, academic medical centers with large international programs as well. So we were kind of sharing that, you know, information and, and trying to piece things together. The one thing I will say is, you know, it was interesting because I remember in April, um, really before anyone went to the universal masking, we were doing, we had asked um, one of the universities in China that we have a partnership with on the scholarly side to do just a Q&A, a forum with us. So we were all at that time in our command center. We weren't masked because there wasn't universal masking. And we were talking to them. They were all six feet apart. They were all masked. So we left that meeting saying, okay, what what are they, what do they know that we don't know about this? And then, you know, very soon after that, a few weeks later, you know, we we began the universal masking and things. So, you know, I do think um Part of that was not knowing as much about early on how the disease can be spread. Great. Uh, Tracy Stein. 
I'd submitted my questions, but what I wanted to know is what is the current treatment protocol and is the hospital using the antibody um, experimental treatment that the president got and what percentage of the patients coming in don't have insurance or the ability to pay? Yes. So, um, you know, the one of the things that I'll say about what we've seen in our experience with with this um, is that every patient tends to be different and people come in with different symptoms, all levels of symptoms from people who just um, have mild respiratory distress to people who have full blown respiratory distress need to be on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So it's been all levels. So what we tend to do is treat the scenario that the patient presents with rather than doing a, a, a set treatment. Now we do use all the treatments that have been mentioned if there are clinical indications for that. Remdesivir, we had we were one of the early clinical trials for that and had the ability to give patients that drug even it, when it was on trial. You know, the other thing I'll say though is I've just been... Um, really pleasantly impressed with how sick some of the patients are in the ICU, but we've been able to get them better. So of the over 600 patients I, I mentioned that we have admitted, um, about a third of those patients needed ICU sometime in their stay. And our fatality rate, we're running a, a total, I think, uh, year to date is we've had about 40 to 45 patients who have um, died of COVID-19, but a lot of those were early on and patients who were elderly or had many coexisting diseases um, and some from the nursing home population. So, you know, the good news is I think the more we learn about this disease, the better we've gotten in treating it. Great. Thank you. Michael, Michael Small. Hi, um, thanks for joining us today. What do you see as the path to the um, vaccine and development of it and then the deployment of it? Yeah, it's interesting um, because our whole clinical trials unit has been very actively involved in the vaccines from the beginning. And almost every week we keep asking them, when is that vaccine gonna be ready? And you know, I think as many of you know, there are about nine current vaccines that are in the uh, one phase or another of clinical development. And there are about another 108 candidate vaccines in the preclinical stage. You know, we really think that trying to select the right vaccines for clinical trials and ones that UCLA participates in is an important factor. So as I mentioned, we're participating in kind of three of the large networks um, where we can do these outpatient vaccine trials. We're also doing a convo, we were early on in doing the convalescent plasma um, trial as well. And then, um, you know, I think it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I still feel our researchers are really optimistic about getting a vaccine ready um, within the next several months. Now, what we don't know is, is it a vaccine that takes one, two, or three doses, you know, similar to like the hepatitis vaccine, which takes a series, or is this going to be something um, that, you know, can be distributed a little quicker? Um, but, um, you know, we continue our active involvement in that. And I would say from where we were several months ago, it looks more promising. Um, just a quick follow-up on, on that question. Have you thought about 
distribution plans once a vaccine has been approved or multiple yes. vaccines are approved? Yes. Um, funny you asked that just yesterday from the California Hospital Association. We received information that said we will be getting a survey to really um, identify for them what our thoughts are on how we would distribute vaccines to our patient population. Um, so they're beginning to gather some input uh, and data on that. Um, I will say, you know, I, I feel we have a very effective way of um, distributing the flu vaccine. So we do have some models of how we can get large numbers of patients and people vaccinated fairly quickly. We would use a lot of that that past work um, to really build on. Great. Um, Doug, Doug Shrivner, please. Yeah, Steve, uh, you, you basically asked my question, but let me just uh, do a, a slight uh, variation on it. I remember back in 1960 when the Sabin polio vaccine um, was introduced. My mother was part of the, the uh, group of people that organized Madison, Wisconsin to deliver three Sundays in a row, the, uh, the oral vaccine. I mean, I, how do we, th is there a way sort of not institution by institution, but on a more <laughs> mass mobilization basis to think about vaccination or times change such or the nature of the diseases such that, that we, we can't mobilize quite the same way? No, I think we actually will see that. I think we'll see some guidance from, you know, federal, state, and local government on that, because one of the other things will be is we'll be all wanting to get the quantities of those vaccines, you know, um, dispensed to us. And so even early on in this, even with remdesivir, after it came off clinical trial, we were all working with federal government to make sure we were getting our allocations of remdesivir. So I think you know, you're exactly right. There is value to, to doing this in a more coordinated way. Thank you. Great. Um, Ron Bergamini. Hi, uh, it's an honor to speak with you. Very Im impressive. Uh, I'm particularly impressed by the telemedicine and I'm curious as to what things we're all going to experience forevermore. What, what's the permanent changes? And I think telemedicine is but I suspect it's a lot more complicated than I realize. So how does the medical community feel about it? And how about the health insurance companies? Are they going to be cooperative? Yes. Um, well, you know, I think um, we did have to put some pressure early on with some of our payers to make sure that we were getting reimbursed for that. Um, I think um, I will say with our medical community, um, there definitely is, I would say, younger people who grew up with technology are much easier to adapt to that, right? So there is a little bit of that comfort level there um, that definitely needs to be overcome. I would say people get more comfortable with it as they continue more visits with that. We actually think, and right now, remember before I told you we were about 70% telemedicine and 30%. Now we're back to about 70% in person, 30% telemedicine. That other 30% could come in. It's perfectly safe for them to come in, but they actually like the convenience of telemedicine. So we think it's here to stay. And we think that's a good thing because what it actually does is it opens up more capacity for us, right. right? We can do that by distance without building more 
clinics. So we're really excited about that potential um, to really expand access to care and not have you know the buildings be rate limiting factors. Great, as, as, you know, as as a follow up to that, Janice, you know, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted people in lower socioeconomic groups. Um, and I know you've been involved, which I can make that phone go away. Uh, I know you've been involved with the, um, the Venice Family Clinic. Yes. Um, you know, could you talk about how the impact you've made and, and, and UCLA's made on, on, on an equitable distribution of, of medicine and, and the, um, some of the innovations you've, you've made there? Yes, I mean, thank you for asking that question. It's so important because we have seen disparities in health outcomes following COVID, particularly in our communities of color, particularly the the Black and Latinx populations. We have outcome data that shows that they are disproportionately adversely affected. So the Venice Family Clinic, um, all of the employees who work in Venice Family Clinic are UCLA employees. Um, The Venice Family Clinic is a federally qualified health center, and we care for um, a very large homeless and underserved population through Venice Family Clinic. So we worked together with them to make sure that we had testing first expanded in those areas, and also to make sure that we had, you know, the right type of access to care. Um, I think early on, someone had asked me about the percentage of underserved, and in general, um, at UCLA, about 22% of our inpatients um, are Medi-Cal, about another 20% are Medicare, so we do see a lot of underserved um, in our health system, and through places like the Venice Family Clinic, those are really 100%, but it was um, really important that we did a lot of outreach as well. We have a street medicine program where we actually go out to where we know there are homeless um, camps so that we can really do the types of health visits that we need. And we also have mobile health vans that go out to uh, different parts of Los Angeles to provide care. Great. Great, thank you. Um, I think we have one last question from from Dorothy Terrell. Uh, Actually, Steve just asked my question. Uh, (laughs) Specifically, I was gonna ask that, but um, to add on to that, I'd like to just ask if you would speak to the telehealth portion and how you're looking at that when it comes to, uh, from the equity perspective. Yes, and um, as you know, um, that be, that can actually become a barrier if people don't have the devices, you know, to use for telehealth and even, you know, a portable phone. We can do visits on phones, um, iPhones, or any type of electronic phone. But the um, one of the reasons that we still need to do those um, outreach visits and actually the vans is because um, even with telehealth that isn't accessible to the whole population. So um, we continue to need to develop some creative options, um, particularly to care for our most vulnerable in the community. Great, great. Well, Janice, I I wanna thank you um, so much for for taking the time. I think this has been incredibly informative. Um, I'm a, I'm a UCLA patient. My doctors are UCLA doctors. Oh, thank you. Um, and, and I can tell you through this pandemic, I have felt lucky to be, you know, to be in this hospital system. 
Oh, thank you. Um, in terms of the, you know, the planning uh, and knowing that if I did get sick, there was, um, I, I would get the best treatment. Um, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful and, and thank you for being here um, and keep, uh, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we appreciate it. Well, thank you all. Definitely a pleasure and everyone stay safe. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Ms. Spiso explains that successfully managing a pandemic relies on the three S's, sufficient staffing of hospitals and healthcare facilities, the right supplies or PPE to keep patients, staff, and families safe, and a hospital's ability for surge capacity. In the case of COVID-19, she details the stress of training staff and preparing facilities in light of changing information regarding the transmission of the disease. Now UCLA and other hospital systems We'll have to apply these difficult lessons as America reckons with a potential resurgence of COVID-19 in the fall. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been the No Labels Podcast.